There are some pressing questions we must answer this week. How can you make shapes and animals out of pancake batter? What's the best way to eat a strawberry? And how can you maximize the milk-to-cookie ratio of an Oreo? These questions, as outlandish as it sounds, will help us better answer other questions. How can I fast with my eye single to God's purpose? How can I truly delight in the Sabbath? How can I better recognize and emulate the Savior's ministry? This week, we study our final block of scriptures from Isaiah in search of answers to these questions. Welcome to the Scripture Study Project. We are your hosts, Krista and Zach Horton, and this is our podcast where we study scripture with you. Our goal each week is to help you discover new or renewed excitement for God and His Word, invest your heart and personal life into your study, and connect with others as you teach and learn together. Hey everyone, welcome to the final episode of the Scripture Study Project on Isaiah. I don't know if you've been counting, we have been studying Isaiah for five weeks now. That's longer than a month. I don't know if in the history of our church we have ever had such a focused and paced attention and study of Isaiah. Um, And so I hope that this has done something for you with the pacing of the different Isaiah chapters and the time we've had in the week to dive in. um, I've been just gleaning from those that I've talked to that they have had an experience with Isaiah that they've never had before. They've been able to see things in his writings that they have missed uh, and come to appreciate him in a better way than they ever had before. And, and that's, that's an exciting thought. So hopefully your study of Isaiah has yielded the same fruits to you. And if the last couple of episodes have been helpful, then I'm grateful for that. This is the last episode on Isaiah. It's also the last episode I will be doing on my own. Uh, Krista has enjoyed her vacation from podcasting long enough, and so uh, she'll be back with me next week, which makes me really excited. So, But I am uh, really, really excited for these chapters. These are some of my favorites in the book of Isaiah. We mentioned last week that those chapters were the climax of Isaiah's description of his people's relationship with God. Uh, the first you know, 30, 40 chapters are about Israel Uh, in kind of dire straits as they build alliances with foreign powers, uh, worship false gods, only to be abandoned by those powers and those gods, and therefore suffer uh, the, the separation from God, suffer being alone, suffer the destruction that comes upon them. That's Israel and Judah. And then last week, Isaiah pivots And he talks about how their God will comfort them, not in the way that they expected, uh, not as the conquering hero, but as the suffering servant, which makes this week the afterword. This is what Israel should learn from their experience and by application then, as we read, what we can learn from them, but also what we should learn in our own relationship with the Lord. And so uh, this makes a really just fitting end to the, the prophetic teachings and writings of Isaiah and something that I think has a lot of merit for us. To set us up, though, I want to jump back a couple of chapters to Isaiah 55. There's that famous verse there, verse 8. My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. 
I was studying that with a group of students a couple of years ago, and I had a pretty perceptive student that said, you know, that kind of sounds like God has life hacks. Now, for anyone that doesn't know what a life hack is, a life hack is a simple but maybe unconventional solution to uh, a problem, or more often, it's a, it's a way to do something better or quicker or easier that falls outside the normal range of what you might think of. So for example, um, we have all had the problem, maybe we haven't all had the problem, I have had the problem where you're making pancakes for young children and they want the pancakes in shapes. And you're looking at the little half cup spoon or, or, or cup that you're using to dole out the, the dollops of pancake batter onto the griddle. And you try and drizzle a little bit to make shapes and it just doesn't work. Well, here's a life hack. You take a squeeze bottle, Heinz 57 ketchup bottle or something like that, clean it out really good, put your pancake batter in the bottle, and then you can squeeze it out. Not only can you make perfect round pancakes, but you can also very easily make different kinds of shapes. That's an example of a life hack. Another one, uh, we've all had the problem of what do you do with the strawberry, the green part on the strawberry, the stem. Uh, if you cut off the top of the strawberry, then you're missing a lot of the strawberry itself. And if you try and pick out that little green part, it leaves some of the white part. And I, obviously, I've been eating food with kids for too long that they're persnickety about things like that. But here's a life hack. You take a straw and you run it through the bottom of the strawberry, right through the center, and it pops the top off. It's a really satisfying feeling. And then you can pull the top out of the straw. You can actually take a bite because the middle part of it's all good. You can throw a little green part away and then you've got a, a nice strawberry that looks perfect and round, but without the green part. Uh, perhaps my favorite is the solution to the Oreo problem. Uh, I don't know if you have this problem like I do, but you have an Oreo and you have this internal debate. Do I dip the Oreo halfway in and keep my finger dry, which means when I eat the Oreo, then I've got half that's soaked in milk and half that's crunchy. Do I try and somehow rotate the Oreo so that it gets evenly dipped? Or do I just put all my fingers in the milk, dip the whole Oreo, but then I've got not only wet fingers, but I've got gross warm finger milk and who wants to drink that? So what do you do? You take a fork and you wedge it in between the two cookies right in the middle of the cream. You dip the Oreo in the milk. I do this all the time. I can swear by it. it makes, it'll make your Oreo eating experience all the better. Those are some examples of life hacks. And this perceptive student says, I think this means, this verse means that God has life hacks. He has some ways to do things that we may not think about. Uh, but that make our lives better, and it probably goes without saying, that make our eternal lives more assured. And so, I think that's a really fitting frame to use to study these last couple of chapters of Isaiah. What are the Lord's ways for doing things that can save us from trial and error and the pains that come with us erroneously trying to do something um, in our own strength or with our own means? And that can help us uh, draw benefit uh, from him, enjoy a more rich and full uh, religious experience in mortality and also, of course, prepare us for eternal life. So with all of that, um, 
that frame, I think, is a fascinating one to study these chapters with. Now, you'll study with that frame, and you'll find your own insights and highlights and things that are meaningful to you. I want to propose just three that I found, maybe by way of example, for things you could find. Um, a couple of them may seem obvious, or at least they're, they're very well-known references, but I think using this frame helps us to identify exactly what it is that Isaiah is teaching. So, stop number one, Isaiah chapter 58. Um, the first verse is the Lord's message to Isaiah, commanding him to go and proclaim this message to Israel. Again, this is the, this is what you should have learned, Israel. And so Isaiah begins in verse 2, and I'm actually going to start in verse 3. And he is using this uh, literary style where he's quoting the people. So he's creating a dialogue here between the people and between the Lord. So, verse 3, Wherefore, which means why, why have we fasted, say they, and thou, meaning God, seest not? Why have we afflicted our soul, and thou takest no knowledge? In other words, we have been doing all of these religious observances exemplified by fasting. We have been fasting, we've afflicted our soul, and you're not listening, you're not paying attention. And then the Lord responds in that same verse, Behold, in the day of your fast, you find pleasure and exact all your labors. Behold, you fast for strife and debate and to smite with the fist of wickedness. You shall not fast as you do this day to make your voice to be heard on high. Is it such a fast that I have chosen, a day for a man to afflict his soul? Is it to bow down his head to a bulrush and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Wilt thou call this a fast and an acceptable day to the Lord? In other words, that's your way of fasting. Now, for Israel, that meant one thing. I think if we turn the lens on our own selves, it's a very relevant, maybe painful question to ask. What are the reasons I have for fasting? Reasons, emotions, etc. This is uh, me maybe preaching to the choir from the the congregation because uh, fasting is a principle that I have for my entire church life really wrestled with. Uh, I'm not good at it. And I have wrestled with the whys and the hows and the whats. I think in recent years, I've finally gotten to a place where I'm at peace with some of my understanding of it, but I still lag way behind in a good practice of it. So this is not, <laughs> not uh, me speaking from experience unless the experience is one who's not doing well at it. But as I was studying, this this jumped right out at me. As I look at the reasons I have for fasting and did a little self-analysis, uh, I realized that I have some very mortal and limited perspective, President Nelson would say myopic, reasons for fasting. So then the Lord says his way, which is in verse 6. Is not this the fast that I have chosen? to loose the bands of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, and to let the oppressed go free, and that ye break every yoke? Is it not to deal thy bread to the hungry, and that thou bring the poor that are cast out to thy house, when thou seest the naked, that thou cover him, and that thou hide not thyself from thine own flesh? Now, that applies to fasting, but remember, Israel's comment here isn't just for fasting. They're using fasting as an example of ordinances that they feel they have performed to no good. 
And the Lord's response is, if you're performing those ordinances for your own benefit, then that explains the hollow feeling you have. Because the reason that I, the Lord, institute a fast or other such practices or ordinances is, of course, there's benefit to you, but it's to bless others, to strengthen you so that you can benefit and bless others. A couple of quotes that help deepen this understanding. Uh, Joseph Smith was once asked, Joseph, is the principle of self-aggrandizement wrong? Should we seek our own good? Well, his answer was, it is a correct principle, meaning the principle of self-aggrandizement, is a correct principle and may be indulged only upon one rule or plan, and that is to elevate, benefit, and bless others first. If you will elevate others, the very work itself will exalt you. Upon no other plan can a man justly and permanently aggrandize himself. Now, with fasting, this is maybe a great example because I have have run into the explanations of fasting and have held on to them myself that, well, the purpose of fast is for me. It's to give me peace and it's to give me a break from eating and it's to cleanse my body and to cleanse my soul. I'm not saying that those are not benefits of fasting, but it was a bit of a call to repentance for me to read that that's not the Lord's purposes for fasting. His purpose is for me to turn my attention not inward, but outward. Because I am spending less energy, time, money, and effort on feeding myself, I can now turn my attention towards watch care or careful attention to others that may need it. Um, This is from our own handbook. Um, It says, The Lord has established the law of the fast and fast offerings to bless his people and to provide a way for them to serve those in need. And then it gives the specifics of fast offerings and says, Blessings associated with the law of fast include closeness to the Lord, increased spiritual strength, temporal well-being, greater compassion, and a stronger desire to serve. But notice those blessings come as we turn our attention to others. And so that's one example of my way versus the Lord's way. My way to fast might be to focus on the benefits it provides me, whereas the Lord's reason for fasting is to focus my attention on the needs of others. Another example in that same chapter, verses 13 and 14, uh, two more well-known verses about the Sabbath day. If thou turn away thy foot from the Sabbath, from doing thy pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, the holy of the Lord honorable, and shalt honor him, not doing thine own ways, nor finding thine own pleasure, nor speaking thine own words, Then shalt thou delight thyself in the Lord, and I will cause thee to ride upon the high places of the earth and feed thee with the heritage of Jacob thy father, for the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. Again, the contrast between your way of doing this and my way of doing this. Your way, our way as mortals about the Sabbath is obviously, and uh, probably more common than we'd like to admit, uh, it's it's a break day. It's a rest day. It's a, a day off from everything else. 
Now, it is, of course, a day of rest, though someone once pointed out to me, it doesn't say a day of rest, it's a day to rest from your labors, which implies that there is still labor to be done on the Sabbath, just not our own. But uh, as the Lord says here, as Isaiah says here, the Sabbath should be a delight. Um, we all know and have read, hopefully, um, a few times at least, President Nelson's powerful teaching on the Sabbath. He says this, I am intrigued by the words of Isaiah who called the Sabbath a delight. Yet I wonder, is the Sabbath really a delight for you and me? So man's way for the Sabbath is to uh, either treat it as another weekend day um, or to maybe groan or bemoan the fact that I can't do anything on Sunday because it's Sunday. I know it's a bit immature of a perspective, but honestly, we probably all have a little bit of that inside of us at some point or another. President Nelson points out the Lord's way is that the Sabbath should be a delight and that we should be able to delight ourselves in the Lord. And so he continues and says this, I first found delight in the Sabbath many years ago when, as a busy surgeon, I knew the Sabbath became a day for personal healing. By the end of each week, my hands were sore from repeatedly scrubbing them with soap, water, and a bristle brush. I also needed a breath from the burden of a demanding profession. Sunday provided much-needed relief. What did the Savior mean when he said the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath? I believe he wanted us to understand that the Sabbath was his gift to us, granting real respite from the rigors of daily life and an opportunity for spiritual and physical renewal. God gave us this special day, not for amusement or daily labor, but for a rest from duty with physical and spiritual relief. Now, the first part of that, I think we understand. It's a rest from duty. We get that Sunday is a day that we should rest from labor and not do the things that we normally do throughout the rest of the week. I don't know, at least in my own experience, I don't know if traditionally I have as much focused on Sunday being a day for physical and spiritual renewal or relief. And President Nelson mentions that a couple of times. In other words, the Lord's way to approach the Sabbath is to take advantage of a, this day to rejuvenate and restore our body and our spirit, which is going to take a little bit of work and a little bit of effort, just different work and effort than maybe we're used to. Later on in his talk, he says this, How do we hallow the Sabbath day? In my much younger years, I studied the work of others who had compiled lists of things to do and things not to do on the Sabbath. It wasn't until later that I learned from the scriptures that my conduct and my attitude on the Sabbath constituted a sign between me and my Heavenly Father. With that understanding, I no longer needed lists of do's and don'ts. When I had to make a decision whether or not an activity was appropriate for the Sabbath, I simply asked myself, what sign do I want to give to God? That question made my choices about the Sabbath day crystal clear. I think that's a really powerful perspective and a useful one in approaching Sabbath day activities. I know we have had this discussion many times as a family. What do we do and what do we not do on the Sabbath? And our kids are entering that age where all of their friends are involved in something or another on Sundays, whether it's sport activities or um or entertainment activities, etc. And our kids are getting increasingly invited to participate in those. And it's difficult because uh, they, at the same time, want to be true in honoring what they believe and the, the 
culture and commandments that they hold true, but also they don't want to be condemnatory towards others that make different choices. And so it's been a real wrestle for them. But one thing that we have come back to repeatedly is we as a family need a day of physical and spiritual renewal. If we don't have that, if Sunday just becomes another day, then we will run out of strength and we won't have anything left over for the other days of the week where we are commanded to work. And so that question, how can we have, how can we, uh, what can we do that would bring us physical and spiritual renewal? Or, and or the question President Nelson asks, what sign do I want to give to God? I think are two great questions to help us frame the Sabbath in the way the Lord intends. A third and perhaps final example. These chapters uh, are replete with descriptions of healing. Chapter 59, verse 1. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, neither is his ear heavy that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated between you and your God. We read that last week where the Lord says, For a moment I hid my face from you, and here Isaiah explains it wasn't the Lord hiding his face. It's our iniquities that separate us from God. And because of that, Israel suffers. Nine, therefore is judgment from far from us, neither doth justice overtake us. We wait for light, but behold obscurity, for brightness, but we walk in darkness. We grope for the wall like the blind, and we grope as if we had no eyes. We stumble at noonday as in the night. We are in desolate places as dead men. We roar all like bears and mourn sore like doves. We look for judgment, but there is none, for salvation, but it is far off from us. So in those situations, there is, of course, man's way for providing answers, and then there is the Lord's way. And these chapters outline the Lord's way, which might be a little bit surprising if we're looking for mortal solutions to problems of the soul. So, uh, verse 16, the Lord mentions that there will be an intercessor through whose arm salvation will be brought. And then, verse 17, for he put on righteousness as a breastplate and an helmet of salvation upon his head. And he put on the garments of vengeance for clothing and was clad with zeal as a cloak. And then chapter 60, verse 1, arise, shine, for the light is come. Um, last week, uh, with some students, we had a discussion about inequality and they, along with many of us, of course, are pained when we look at the world and we see varying degrees and varying categories of inequalities, those that have compared to those that don't, whether it's monetary or social or physical or emotional or mental, uh, our world of course just has it's rife with inequality. However, as we studied a bit, we came to understand uh, that there's a difference between the way that uh, a mortal approach to inequality and maybe an eternal approach, approach to inequality. A mortal approach to inequality is to equalize or to increase equality, which is well, if people are unequal, we need to treat everyone equally. The image that's used for this sometimes is if there's a giant apple tree and you and I are both standing under the apple tree and I'm short and you're tall, you can reach the apples, but I can't 
That's unequal. So what's the answer? Well, a mortal approach is, well, let's give everyone a stepladder so that they can reach the apples. However, if we give everyone the same size stepladder, A, you don't need one, and B, I might need a longer one than the one that's provided. And so the mortal solution of let's just treat everyone everywhere equally doesn't often solve the problem of inequality. However, in this chapter, the Lord uses a word that's in English, but that maybe better encapsulates his approach to inequality. This is 59 verse 14. Judgment is turned away backward. Justice standeth afar off, for truth is fallen in the street, and equity cannot enter. That word equity is not the same as the word equality. Equal, or in the Hebrew text, the word equal means sameness of amount. The word equity means just or fair. And sometimes what is just or fair is not equal in amount. And so as the Lord comes to make up for inequalities, we shouldn't expect that he will do the same thing for everybody everywhere. We believe and, and follow a God that is individual, and he will mete out justice, uh, fairness, individual by individual. Um, I love, and we mentioned this back at the very first chapter of Isaiah, but it bears rereading. I love chapter 61. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all that mourn, to appoint unto them that mourn in Zion, to give unto them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they might be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, and he might be glorified. In other words, the Lord is going to come, as he did in his first ministry, he's going to come in a second coming and do what he does, what's part of his nature, and that is to focus on those that are hurting, that are broken, the meek, the captive, the imprisoned, and to provide for them comfort and solace. I love that about him. I love that our Lord knows situations so uniquely and so intimately that he can customize his comfort for each individual. There is no one-size-fits-all plan. There is no us-we group approach to salvation. Salvation from the Lord, his way towards salvation, is not a plan or a program it's a ministry to persons, individual people, one by one, with a ministry specifically designed for them. And if we were to take a lesson from this, we might turn our eye to our ministering opportunities and maybe have the same approach. Um, we often have multiple people assigned to us as ministers, and then we're aware of many other people in our ward that have uh, different needs and in our own ward council this last week, we had the discussion about sometimes that's just that's just a lot of people to focus on. Well, what if instead of trying to figure out how we can minister to everyone, what if we asked the Lord who he would have us focus our efforts on and then to go about serving and ministering to that individual or those individuals in the way the Lord prompts us? 
I don't know, but that could be one potential way that we could do things the way the Lord does things, uh, rather than maybe the way that we are tempted to do them on our own. Those are just some insights and ramblings from me. You will find so many more personal and powerful things on your own. I do want to end, though, with some promises. I love these back in chapter 58. If we can do things the Lord's way as opposed to just doing things our way. Verse 9, Then shalt thou call, and the Lord shall answer. Thou shalt cry, and he shall say, Here I am. If thou take away from the midst of thee the yoke, and putting forth the finger, and speaking vanity, and if thou draw out thy soul to the hungry, and satisfy the afflicted soul, then shall thy light rise in obscurity, and thy darkness be as the noonday. And the Lord shall guide thee continually, and satisfy thy soul in drought, and make fat thy bones, and thou shalt be like a watered garden, and like a spring of water, whose waters fail not. And they that shall be of thee shall build the old waste places. Thou shalt raise up the foundations of many generations, and thou shalt be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of paths to dwell in. I love that if we can turn our minds and hearts and hands and do anything the Lord's way, that we can become the repairer, the restorer, uh, who allies, allies ourselves with him, aligns ourselves with him to do things the way that he would do them. Thank you so much for studying with me these past few weeks in Isaiah. We will look forward to Krista rejoining us next week as we jump into the book of Jeremiah. Happy studies. <laughs>